Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a real treat for you. We're going to talk about basic science research, and we've got two absolute superstars, but with very different backgrounds and who focused on very different areas. So first, we have Dr. Scott Rodeo, Chief Emeritus of Sports at HSS. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, we're really glad you could be with us. Next, we have Dr. Tai Lee, who is the Chief Scientist at the Congress Medical Foundation and the Vice Chair Emeritus at UC Irvine. Tai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very happy to be here. So I wanted to start by asking both of you how you first became interested kind of in basic science orthopedic research. So Scott, tell us first, how did you get into this area of research? Yeah, my interest is always kind of in sports injuries. And so I kind of gravitated toward tendons, ligaments, cartilage, things like that. I remember, you know, I got interested in, I was a third or fourth year medical student, 1988 paper from Steve Arnoxley and Russ Warren, where they evaluated a fibrin clot to heal for meniscus healing. And that just struck me as a, as a cool area, one of the earlier, you know, papers in the kind of biology of soft tissue repair. And that's what kind of sparked my interest. And I had interest in um, studying soft tissue injury, having had my own injuries as, a, as an athlete. Um, I came during my residency to realize all really, the deficiencies in our treatment. So I kind of looked at almost a glass half, uh, half full, if you will, um, or half empty, I should say, you know, in, in a negative way. And by that, I mean, I realized all, you know, the limitations in our treatments for cartilage, for meniscus, for ligament, for tendon. And that's really sparked my interest in wanting to understand more about the underlying pathophysiology of these tissues and how we can ultimately use that information to figure out how to, how to treat these, these things better. Well, what about you, Ty? How did you first get into the area of research you, you've so dominated for the past 20 years? Okay, the, the way I got into it is a little different than most of the surgeons, obviously. Uh, I'm a scientist in, in a clinical field. I'm a mechanical engineer by training. And while I was an undergrad, when I first saw an orthopedic implant, I thought that was the coolest thing. Um, the engineering that goes in there, as well as the longevity that goes in. So I got interested in it, and I got to study with Dr. Savio Wu, who is one of the pioneers in biomechanics, and kind of went through and learned research methods through him. And through that process, while going through graduate school, I thought to myself that this is the only job that you get to do something no one's ever done, and you get paid for it. So I kind of gravitated towards what I was interested in, which was more of joint mechanics as well as joint prosthesis, and just started to develop my research interests going from there. But more importantly, I think through my experience, the most important factor um, on my productivity is surgeon partners. So I was very fortunate enough to work with very motivated surgeons who are thinkers, and we're able to solve problems that came up. And as far as topics went, it was actually very simple. Um, I tell my residents and fellows these, this all the time that they can't get research ideas. Um, basically, all the research ideas come from operating rooms or while treating a patient. 
and there's no way that we already have answers to everything and that's where all the questions come from and there's plenty of them and we just try to utilize all the i guess uh, technology that we have trying to solve it now both of you have made some incredibly large contributions to our field not just for orthopedics, but I think that they have, each of you and your works have inspired medicine in general. Now it's interview season for residents and fellows and often residents and fellows get asked, what's your most favorite study? What's your study that you're proudest of? And, and Pete and I wanna ask each of you this, given the volume of work that you've contributed and the relevance of the work you've contributed. So um, Scott, let's start with you. What's the paper or series of papers that you are most proud of? Rachel, it's a good question. It's I go back, we've, one of my fundamental interests has been in, in interfaces, healing between soft tissue and bone. And it really goes back to the first work I did with Steve Arnoxy. And this is another point I would make, and Ty kind of brought this out, is, is collaborations and, and collaborators and, and really role models. But so I started with Steve Arnoxy when I was a resident here at HSS, and Steve being obviously a kind of major figure and father of soft tissue research. So we did a study looking at the soft healing of a tendon graft in a bone tunnel. And that's just one particular paper. We published that as, as a resident. But it sparked my interest in continuing this area of research that I really continued, honestly, to this day. And to your, your question about sort of a series of papers, that's what we've kind of continued to study that area. And this is, a, I think, a good lesson for all of us and, and our, our younger trainees is pick an area and really just delve into it and follow that area over time because each each study you do brings up three more questions. And so we've we followed that area and studied in particular the role of mechanical loading and how that affects biology. We've used that to that line of investigation to study the role of cytokines and now the signaling molecules and you know the, the techniques you have available now didn't exist 20 years ago and the ability to use transgenic models and you know, high-resolution imaging in our animals and RNA-seq and multi-parameter flow cytometry, these, you know, high-dimensional data analysis techniques that allowed us to continue to study, frankly, the same thing I was studying in the early 1990s, but at a much higher resolution. So that's kind of what sparked my interest, but it really goes back to our, our first work in tendon healing in the bone tunnel. And Ty, how about you? What is the series of papers or the single paper that you're most proud of when you say this is, if I could be known for anything, or this is what I'm most satisfied with, what, what would that be? That's really hard to say. Unfortunately, I feel like I'm a brick builder where I try to um, advance knowledge best as I can. But if I was to tell you that's something that I was most proud of, it's not actually an individual paper. I feel like everybody that I work with, um, we were able to figure out, or I, I guess to students and residents and fellows, I believe I taught them how to critically think and break things down and apply classical mechanics, not those mathematical equations and so forth, but how to think from a basic, um, real basic perspective. For example, in, in shoulder, um, first thing to do is we need to break um, break down different stabilizing systems. One is bony tissues, the other is passive soft tissues, and third is muscles. And by teaching the ability to break those three components down and build them back up, I think that probably is the most powerful way of analyzing any joints, including injuries and developing, um, developing repair strategies. Um, one more thing is also how to do research that most people don't understand that most of the work goes on in the front end. 
every single project that, that we published, we did not start our experiment until 50% of the um, work spectrum was already passed. So we put a lot of work in the front end and then your experiment goes smoothly and your questions and answers are very clear. So I think um, fundamentals of uh, mechanics and also how to do research. I think teaching those two things, I believe, in my opinion, was the greatest contribution to people in our field. You know, make, I'll make you. a point there to pick up on what Ty said. I think he makes a very good point that, you know, sometimes you're asked to pick your, your single one paper or something, but really it's an iterative process. Um, it, it, you know, the first one, one paper builds on another, which leads to another, which leads to another. And, and there's, you know, it, when you look back on it, it may seem like you know, it's all these great accomplishments, but the reality is it's just, it's, it's small little pieces. It's an iterative, iterative process there. And as Ty mentioned, it's more important you develop the, the techniques, the, the methodology, the approach, and that's how you be successful over the long term. And again, back to my earlier comments about identifying the area and, and sticking to it and focusing on the area, that's how I think you can really move the needle. Pick one or two areas, kind of focus on those areas, get a passion for it, and say, I'm going to spend the next 40 years researching that, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, yeah I like that. Uh, maybe I can add one more thing to that. This is, this is a podcast. Hopefully, a lot, a lot of the young people are listening. I, it's, it's great to do research, and it's fun, and it answers questions that get you on the podium. But yeah, eventually, you should pick a pick an area or a topic that you're really interested in, focus in that, and that way you get much more gratification out, and you also end up making a much more significant contribution to the field, approaching it that way, rather than dabbling on ten different topics. I love, Ty, also that you, you referenced how you felt like one of your important contributions was all the things you taught to all of the people who had come to work with in your lab. I think that's so, so often overlooked by researchers is the influence they have, not just on the field, but also on, you know, the people that they train. Scott, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things you've been really successful at is building collaborations with basic scientists. I mean, you mentioned earlier Petronovsky um, and, you know, the work that he did with Warren and how that kind of first sparked your interest. How, you know, you've been really successful at these building these collaborations. How have you built and maintained these collaborations, and what has it taught you about managing teams generally? Yeah, great point. That's almost back to my earlier comment about research being an iterative process that takes time. So collaborations are critical, and, and no more so than now as as the science and techniques become more advanced. As I mentioned, doing and we've moved in toward using. Um, mirroring models now and transgenic animals, the ability to do RNA sequencing and flow cytometry and some of these, these powerful techniques where you need, you need the scientific expertise. No one individual, especially as a clinician, um, has all the expertise. So it takes time. And it, take me, it probably took me and still takes probably eight to ten years to really build up this team of individuals, um, scientific collaborators, Tech, you know, technical collaborators here at within HSS, and I've actually reached out and be, began working as an example of where you can develop collaboration. I've worked much more in recent years with our rheumatologists and immunologists. So we study inflammation and the role of inflammatory mediators and immune cells and tissue healing. Well, we've got these rheumatologists and immunologists here who are experts in that area. Those aren't individuals who orthopedists have typically collaborated with, but I've learned more from them than, than almost anyone. Um, then you reach out to other individuals in your institution and in your community on the scientific side. So, yeah, it, it is really, really the most important part of, I think, developing a lab. And then you need to sort of nurture that. There's, you know, once you've got a team of people, um, 
you have to be dedicated. You you know you can't. You've got to show up for meetings. You've got to nurture. You've got to be there. You can't disappear for days and weeks at a time. So, and that goes back to to do that. You need to have a passion. Ultimately, to do this and do it well and make it fun, um, have a passion. Titus mentioned picking a couple areas and really focusing on it. To do that, um, well, you'll be much happier do, doing it and able to do it if you have a passion for an area. Versus Joe you know, G is just like I do his you know studies so I can get on the podium. Yeah, that's fine, but you're doing it because you have a passion for it. Have a real curiosity for your field, um, and especially on, on the clinician side. You know, my goal is to translate what we do in the laboratory to patients. So at the end of the day, you know, the the goal is to not just learn intellectually about these two things, which frankly to me is fascinating by itself. But okay, how can I use that information to make my patients better? And that's you know the translational part that we as clinician scientists should aim for. Natai, you and your colleagues have done a lot of really important biomechanics work, and you talked about your background as a mechanical engineer. You know, a lot of our listeners, as, as it sounds like you know, are people that are in their training. They're medical students, residents, maybe people early on in their practice. Tell us on why biomechanics is important for, clinic, for, for clinical orthopedics. Sell, sell this genre of orthopedics. Why, if someone's deciding what kind of research to do, why is, why is biomechanics the thing that we should be doing? I guess I have one liner answer for that. One liner answer is that I see orthopedic surgeons as engineers in medicine. That's why I think biomechanics is important. And everything is related to mechanical demands and your body has to go along with it. Um, and plus it's fun. And from an engineering perspective, we look at things as initial and boundary conditions. From orthopedic perspective, that becomes human anatomy and functional demands. So there's a lot of parallel way of thinking between biomechanics and uh, orthopedic surgery. Now, the important part, I want to touch a little bit on what Scott was saying about uh, residents and fellows and younger people wanting to do research and so forth. I mean, obviously, you got to have passion. But I think one of the thing, biggest mistakes that young orthopedic surgeons make and also young scientists make is, well, this is my field and I'm gonna study, I'm really good at it, so I'm gonna do my part and hand over the clinical part to um, surgeons. But that doesn't quite work. I mean, that is your fundamental responsibility. But if you're a scientist um, or an engineer, you have to make an effort to understand problems that orthopedic surgeons see and stay, try to stay up with the literature and be aware of what's going on clinically. And same thing goes for orthopedic, orthopedic surgeons working with scientists. They may not get everything, but they need to make an effort trying to understand what uh, we're trying to do because we don't want to end up and answering a question that's not relevant either. And it goes the other way also. And so my, um, my thought with respect to that is you need to make an effort trying to understand what your collaborators are doing and also um, have a real passion, like Scott's saying, there's um, no other real magic to it. It's, uh, for me, it's like nothing I'd rather do. Even when I retire, I may cut back on some hours, but I think I'm gonna be doing this forever, so. Yeah, I don't see it as a job. I see it as what I do, I love it. It's not, you know, it shouldn't be, yeah, fine. Pick an area that you can have a passion for. It can be clinical research. It can be bag, you know, biology-based, mechanics-based. Pick something. 
doesn't matter what it is, as long as it is. By that I mean pick an area and, and yeah, develop that passion. Because then, it, then it's not a job. Then it's it's uh, it's fun. It's what you do. It makes it easier to spend what, frankly, you have to do, which is sometimes nights and weekends. I and mean, that's just the reality. It's, it's the world we live in. And uh, it's easy to do that if you if you enjoy what you're doing. Thank yeah, you. And, no, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to answer Peter's question. I didn't quite answer his question. Why is biomechanics important? Because in order for orthopedic surgeons to un understand how joints and skeletal, musculoskeletal systems work, you have to understand biomechanics. That's why it's important. Right. Yeah, as a surgeon, we know that. That's for sure, right? I mean, it's surgery is there's a lot of mechanics, and it's anatomy yeah. and mechanics. It kind of starts there. Well, let's let's move that on to a different aspect of research that's so clinically relevant and has become such a hot topic in the last few years. And, and Scott, we'll go to you because a lot of your work has recently focused on the topic of biologics and cellular therapy, stem cells, PRP. Is any of this really ready for clinical use right now? And what does the next five years in this field look like, both from a clinical perspective as well as a basic science perspective? That's a loaded question, so take your time. Yeah, well, it's an area that has great potential, obviously. Honestly, I think that what maybe octoplasty was to our field in the 70s, regenerative medicine or biologics, if you will, can be in, in, the, in this next decade. Are we there? No. I would submit to you that much of this is in its infancy. Um, there are some, you know, techniques and or some applications that have some data, you know, now, obviously PRP and things like that, but really we're just scratching the surface. So I would submit to you that on one hand, um, the field is very young in its infancy. On the other hand, there's tremendous potential. Needs further development. As you know, there's we've all seen it's an area that has, frankly, a lot of indiscriminate use. It's aggressive marketing. It's in those of us that work in soft tissue see uh, see the attraction of the of biologics. You know, we have patients with difficult problems, meniscus injury, tendon injury, cartilage injury, where we frankly don't have great solutions. Um, they see then on their side the the appeal and attraction of you know stem cells seems sexy, seems fancy, seems cutting edge. It's a perfect storm where you have this patient with a difficult problem. We have we don't have great solutions. Um, patient sees these, these attractive you know techniques are out there, and and that's so it's upon it's on us to evaluate these treatments in a much more rigorous fashion. What led me to really start our, our regenerative medicine effort at special surgery was, as I'm sure you do, Rachel, you see patients all the time who ask about, you know, stem cells, this, that, and the other, and you try to educate them, and they say, no, 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 Dr. Frank, you don't understand. You know, Dr. Smith down the hall is going to, he's going to cure my arthritis with stem cells. <laughs> and you could try to educate the patient. Um, but the reality is, you know, they're going to go down the hall and see someone else. Or in New York, they're going to go down to, you know, four other institutions. So I said, you know what, let's keep these patients here, do these treatments if individuals want to do some of them, but let's do it in a rigorous fashion. Put these patients in a clinical registry. Obtain a biospecimen that we can look at in the laboratory so we can evaluate composition, biologic activity. Let's do this in a rigorous fashion to move this field forward. And I think that's what we need in this area. You know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because what's going to happen is if we if these techniques are used willy-nilly and indiscriminately, the data will be as it is, kind of variable. And people say, ah, oh, this stuff doesn't work, and they'll move on. Well, that's not the case at all. Clearly, this needs further development. I think it's on us to, as clinicians and scientists, to design the studies both in the laboratory and then link that with our clinical studies to move the field forward. So that's an area that, you know, it's a driving passion for me because it's something I see on a regular basis with our patients. I see with our athletes all the time. And um, I think we can really make a contribution to her, you know, Rachel, in the next, you know, three, five, seven years. It's not going to be a year or two. It's going to be a longer term 
um, prospect, but an area that has tremendous potential. Scott, I wanted to follow up with you about that. I, mean, I think, first off, great kudos to you for, for doing this work. Um, and I, I think we, I see the same pressures I'm sure you see from patients to, to, to move this forward and to try and get it ready for clinical use. One of the major limitations on stem cell research in this country currently is there are restrictions on modification of stem cells and then reimplantation of them that are not present currently in other countries. And certainly I've heard patients say that to me, well, you know, I need to go to Thailand to get this done because they can really do this and you just can't do this in this country. Respond right. to that. Do you yep. think that's true? Do you think we we understand how to do that at this point anyway? Or do we, does something need to change from a, from a regulatory perspective before we're really going to be able to move that forward? Yeah, even with if we change a regulatory environment, we could do ex vivo, quote unquote, manipulation, right, of a, a bone marrow aspirate or, or an adipose cell uh, formulation. You know, Peter, we we have we have a long way to go before we're there because we we need to understand what are the particular cell types that we want to isolate. You know, what what we need to match the treatment to the underlying pathology. The reality is the number of true stem cells by any formal you know, cellular or molecular criteria in any of these formulations is vanishingly small. And then you expand that. So, in fact, a true stem cell is probably the least prevalent cell in any of these formulations. Now you expand that in culture, and those cells become even less prevalent. And, in fact, they may be, there may be cells in a, a formulation that compete with or inhibit the desired cell. So, again, we need much, much more information. Even if you told me tomorrow I could take you know, a BOMER aspect to the laboratory and do some type of cell sorting and culture expansion, I think we're a long way from knowing what type of cell do we want to sort for, how do we want to isolate those cells, what cells do we want to expand. And, frankly, it's probably different for each different condition. So, ultimately, a precision medicine approach is going to be required where we need to identify not just what we're putting in the patient, um, but also what is the patient's pathology and ultimately match the two. You know, we, we put the same PRP or BMEC, if you will, in for cartilage, for tendon, for ligament, for muscle. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, these are all very different tissues and different pathologies. And so we are, again, I think we're, that's why I say this field of thinking is, is in its infancy. And so patients that go, you know, medical tourism, we all see it. It's um, and, you know, there are other countries obviously have the ability to do some culture expansion and things like that. But, boy, there's still a lot we don't know. And, and you know, some of those places, uh, you don't really know what's being done. The regulatory environment is more lax. So I often warn patients, listen, you know, you know buyer beware. It's hard to really – they ask you to evaluate these techniques. Hard to do that because we, there's, there's very little rigorous information that's often out there to really guide us in, in guiding our patients. So, again, back to what we need to do to define the major burning questions – and then start to answer them in a collaborative way here. I think that's such an interesting point that certainly the approach is going to be different for tendon and cartilage. And certainly I think we're, I'm certainly seeing that indiscriminate approach by, by those that are um, champions of this uh, currently. Let me ask you this. So what, you know, I know you've been working on this, which is which stem cells do we need and which injuries and, how do we activate them? How do we how do we isolate them? What um, what what are the next steps? Like if you if you have your crystal ball, you know, and you're looking and you're looking into the future of let's just let's just give an example of a rotator cuff tear. Mm -hmm. Like what do you think is the next the next biologic to come on the market or the next biologic that we can actually use clinically in that setting? I think it will be using cells, but I think it will be a different approach here. I think it will be understanding that cells are 
sig- you know, producing a number of signaling molecules. I think the more, where the field is headed will be a couple areas. One is to ha- we'll learn how to stimulate the intrinsic progenitor cells that are present in many tissues. You know, cells line the walls of blood vessels, pericytes, and cells like that are inherent or resident in many tissues. There are these in, in connective tissue progenitor cells that are in fact present. Question is, how do we how do we leverage those cells? Well, I think that we can do that through biologics, whether that's a cytokine, whether that's something derived from autologous blood, or whether it's you know a, a, a population of cells that we inject that, that produce the signaling molecules that mobilize or stimulate those intrinsic progenitor cells. So I think that's one area. I think the other area where we move forward is understanding the fundamental and critically important role of immune cells and immune cell subtypes and their interaction with progenitor cells. I mean, think about tissue injury, surgery's injury, tissue in, you know, an injured tissue there is a very complex and evolving inflammatory milieu in that tissue. And each tissue may be different, various immune cell subtypes and, and complex mediators that are present. I think those it's those aspects that initiate and regulate the healing process and, frankly, probably regulate those those intrinsic cells that are present tissues. I think we'll learn a lot by actually working with our colleagues that understand basic aspects of, of, of um, immune function and inflammation at a much more robust or, or you know, detailed level. I, I th- I'd like to add a couple of comments to, to that. Um, it kind of follows up on biomechanics part. What Scott's been saying with the stem cells and biologics, I think mechanics also play a big role in biologics because you have to you have to um, figure out how to deliver it, and you have to create a mechanical environment that cells will react to, and you have to have whatever for the biologic that you deliver to stay there, and most most importantly, you have to have the host conditions that is ideal or um, that is receptive to the biologic treatment that's going on. So in some ways, like to simplify it, I kind of look at all this as um, we're building a house and we have all these fancy house house parts that we're trying to figure out, which are all these different cells and trying to grow the right type of tissue. And then we have to get it to the place and we have to know how to build our house. And then we also have to make sure that foundation has to be strong, which will be the host environment. So there's a, um, it's a very exciting research. Like Scott was saying, it's early stages. But I think um, there's a lot more to come and a lot of people working on this different aspects and truly exciting, exciting part, because I think that's the future merging uh, structure integrity with um, with biology. I'd pick up on that. Ty. It's a great point. I'd pick up further to say exactly, you know, you know, Rachel and Peter, a lot of most of the, like, the vast majority of work in this whole area of biologics is on the biology side. Um, clearly, Mechanical loading affects the biology in a most fundamental way in all of these tissues. You know, we're we're dealing with musculoskeletal tissues to see mechanical load, compression, shear, tension. This isn't a liver or a kidney. Um, and so, uh, Ty brings up a really important point: the interaction between mechanics and how that affects the biology. And that's been an interest of ours for several decades, honestly, understanding how mechanical loading affects the biologic events. And uh, so, great point. Great point. And it goes back to, again, collaboration. So back to how, how do you do good research? Well, it's interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary. And you go back to collaborations. You need your your biologists, you need your engineers, and you need that paired with your clinicians. And only then can you move the field forward. 
Well, it's amazing because that marriage of mechanics and biology has really driven innovation from an orthopedic perspective over the last decade, if not longer than that. And one of those innovative areas is that with treating the irreparable rotator cuff. And, and Ty, a lot of your work has focused on this, you know, quite recently with superior capsular reconstruction and, and repair and reconstruction of irreparable rotator cuffs. So tell us a little bit more about your work in this area and where are we going in the next five, 10 years? Because the innovation, you know, with rotator cuff treatment with across a wide spectrum of different options, ranging from SCR to repair with augment to biologics to the balloon, et cetera, there's so many different options. Where are we going in the next five to 10 years with the cuff and what can your work help us, you know, discover in the future? I think um, it obviously. I think it's going. It's starting to mature and expand at the same time. The superior capsular reconstruction itself is, I think, maturing. So uh, that procedure procedure is going to stay and just get refined. But the same concept is going to expand like crazy, like balloons and biceps and tuberoplasties and what have you. And all those things came from a concept that when you look at irreparable rotator cuff tears, it's um, rotator cuff tear plus the superior capsule, which is a passive passive um, restraint system. So what we've been really understanding through, throughout past 10 years, I, I, I guess it's been about 10 years, it takes a long time for a message to get out there because now I think people are starting to understand these different different stabilizing mechanisms there, how that, that is being applied. So one of the things that came out of superior capsular construction is that the graft that we use that has to um, keep the humeral head down as a passive restraint system. And now that also has to work in a cuff deficient environment. So that's why uh, Dr. Mihada's graft kept on getting thicker throughout the years. The reason for it getting thicker is as you increase the thickness of the graft, you um, decrease the tensile demands of the superior capsule or the graft that you have. So there's uh, give or take, and you have to understand that balance depending on what graft uh, choice you're using. Because at the end of the day, no matter what procedure you do, you still have a couple deficient shoulder that has to work. So you cannot be reconstructing the superior capsule itself. So this is, uh, I'm talking about massive irreparable rotator cuff tears, that, those ones that um, you may not even do a partial repair. But if you can do a partial repair, I think that you have to assess the patient's demands very carefully. And if their demands aren't so high, probably partial repair with some type of augmentation will do just fine. You don't have to go through the entire superior capsule reconstruction process. So that augmentation again becomes, um, or it's also wide open with the biceps or with patches or with the balloon. I think whole purpose of the balloon itself is, the concept again is very good because you're depressing the humeral head from a mechanical perspective, but at, at the same time, um, what, hap what happens when the balloon disappears, uh, resorbs? That's a part, you know, that's a question that has to be answered. I think it's a very easy procedure. Uh, you depress the humeral head, but you don't really stabilize the glenohumeral joint like superior capsule reconstruction does. So I think it relieves pain, 
but balloons movement, uh, somebody will have to uh, look at some follow-up to really look at what's happening. And then why are these patients actually better uh, even after the balloon pops? The same question is raised with Dr. Mihana's patients where um, his results are far superior than the uh, dermograft SCR procedures. And when you look at that, aside from it being an autograph, there really isn't that much difference, uh, except fascial autograph being really thicker. So that still has to be teased out. I just gave a talk to shoulder and elbow on the kinematic changes that it is clearly, uh, it is very clear that superior capsular reconstruction procedure stabilizes the joint, but the kinematics is significantly altered. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because the, um, it has to function in a cuff-deficient cuff shoulder. So to answer the question, I think the field is wide open because people are trying all different things, just trying to depress the humeral head to let the del deltoid work. Or secondary thing is just augmented repair so a patient will be uh, pain-free and they can function to their level of mechanical demands. So as far as um, creativity and the concept being expanding, I think it's going to continue to expand. Superior capsule reconstruction is procedure itself. I think it's just going to get refined and hopefully make it a little easier. So, um, so it'll be easier for average orthopedic surgeon to use. So I know I rambled a bit, but <laughs> I think the, it, the procedure itself is mature. The concept will continue to expand because people are going to figure out a different way to uh, depress the human head. I wanted to follow up with you about this because I think this particular topic is one that's of interest to a lot of surgeons right now. And as you mentioned, it's it's a solution for a difficult clinical problem, the irreparable cuff, rotator cuff tear, the cuff deficient shoulder that, as you mentioned, disrupts the biomechanics of the function of the deltoid and the remaining cuff. You talked a lot about bringing the head down and how that restores the normal center of rotation. And there's been some recent clinical studies about that as well. There's a Biplane proloscopy study that was just published. And then there's also a paper that was presented um, at AOSSM that's kind of a serial fluoroscopy study with the arm raised that challenges some of those questions and suggests maybe that the SCR functions more as an interposition arthroplasty at the acromial humeral uh, articulation. Tell us about that. Do you, and you've done a ton of work looking at this biomechanically, do you think that effect is more important? Do you think that there's the fact that it restrains superior migration is important or, or are those two effects really one and the same? Those two, two effects, I think there's a lot of things going on. Uh, I think if you look at it from real basic perspective, it's depressing the humeral head and center, uh, centering the humeral head so delta can work. But is it really that effective for initiating um, shoulder abduction? It probably is not. There's other uh, type of adaptation that's going on. Uh, so, but one thing um, to think about interposition arthroplasty versus superior capsular reconstruction is if you take that joint through rotational range of motion, the restraint provided by that capsule or that passive soft tissue is gone. So, I think at certain rotations um, that you look at the patient or the follow-up that you do, at certain positions, 
that is true. It's in a precision arthroplasty. It's going to work exactly the same. But if you take it to different uh, range of rotation and try to perform the same task, you're going to see a huge difference. That's that's why we're actually looking into um, kinematics of irreparable irreparable rotated cuff tears more before and after superior capsule reconstruction. And for that matter, for other augmentation procedure as well, because that that tension or tensile function uh, of the superior capsule or any glenohumeral hemorrhage joint capsule plays a big role, especially uh, in extreme rotational um, range of motion positions. Did I answer the question? I hope I did. <laughs> You did. You did. It was it was great. Um, Scott, you know, your you, your area, I know your research is in a very different area, but I wanted to ask you, I mean, with all the research you've done about tendon healing, what is your thought here on an acellular dermal allograft? I mean, do you do you think based on what you've known that that that, that can become kind of a pseudo tendon or pseudo ligament with time? Tell us what you think. I think it can. I think we need to encourage Chloe the end of the day to heal tissues and to repair microscopic damage what do we need we need cells so that's, it, that material needs to be repopulated with cells whether that's done ex vivo prior to implantation or more more practically and realistically how do we encourage cells to repopulate this material after surgery so to that end i think we're going to learn how to put the appropriate signaling molecules and stimuli in that material and that may not be just chemicals like cytokines but also um, stimuli based on the, the microstructure of the material, the chemistry of the material. So the composition and microstructure in addition to any uh, exogenous small peptides or cytokines we put in. But I think some way to modify the material so that we are attracting cells into the material. And then how do we differentiate those cells into the desired cell phenotype, into a tendon-like cell that synthesizes the appropriate matrix proteins? That'll be where the challenge is. So I think one more thing to add about that superior capsule reconstruction is you're doing that with the dermograft or fasciolatograft or what have you, but it has to actually replace the function of the superior capsule, supraspinatus, and the bursa, all three of them. So it can't be just one single reconstruction. And with the dermograft, um, there are some cases that people are showing that dermograft actually thickening, but eventually, I think all these uh, procedures need the volume as well as um, remodeling. Scott, you've been really successful, obviously, in basic science research as a clinician. Many of our listeners are trainees and surgeons early in their practice. Tell us, what advice do you have for someone, say, in residency or in fellowship or even early on in their career if they're inclined to be an academic you know, surgeon scientist but maybe don't have the resources of HSS or, or University of Utah or University of Colorado, or, or maybe they do, but... Um, but but perhaps they don't or they're in private practice. How can they get involved as a surgeon scientist at an early phase in their career? Establish collaborations. I think the most successful way to do this, is, is, is we all have seen and learned, is a surgeon, a clinician collaborating with the basic scientist. That scientist can be in the biology side, mechanics, or something else. But I think ultimately seek out scientists with whom you can work and and it may take you a year or two or three or five. <laughs> Look at, you know, find people in your institution. And then at the same time, you, you do need institutional support. So in an individual who really wants to pursue this pathway, you talk to your chairman. You need to help 
help them understand the importance of this, and a, and a good chairman at a, at a big department will. That it's and frankly, early on, and honestly, it costs money. It costs them money, but it comes back to institution ten different ways in in um, the research that you develop, in the visibility for the program, and attracting the kind of people you want there, as far as residents, as far as fellows, putting people on the podium, things like that. It, and it, it, it makes it makes everybody better. And so, but it's it's it, it's it's an investment. Investment. Um, human resources and the financial resources to, to do it, but the simple answer to your real question is, is establish collaborations. You know that that's your best way to start because again, it's hard to go and start doing real basic bi uh, biology or mechanics research all by yourself. As the techniques become more and more involved and, and more technical, you need you need those collaborations. Ty, let me ask you, you know, oftentimes basic science comes, at least basic science research, comes under attack by pure clinical colleagues as not being clinically relevant. We see this at meetings from time to time. We also see it uh, more commonly now in 2021 and moving into 2022 on social media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, et cetera, where there's maybe too little fidelity between the experimental model and the in vivo clinical situation and so-called clinicians who don't do any research may question clinical applicability, state that there's no ability to draw conclusions from data. This is cadaveric data. This is lab data. This is not real time. It's not applicable. Defend basic science research for all of us. Tell us why is this important and why do we need to rely on these studies to drive our clinical decisions? Well, I think basic, basic science is critically important because it provides um, understanding, understanding for what we see. I think one of the things, uh, uh, this may be, um, I'm trying to get my thoughts together. One of the things about our field or medicine is it's still largely apprenticeship where certain things happen and surgeons do or uh, physicians do and they treat it the same way as someone else saw it before. So it's largely an apprenticeship in many ways still. But certainly what, uh, what science does is that it gives you the fundamental understanding of the mechanisms that are involved in either injury or healing. And what experiments do is it, that experiments explains or the scientific studies explains certain cause and effect um, phenomenon in every pathology. So when somebody says certain studies are not clinically relevant, they may not have a direct clinical relevance, but it has to go through that um, spectrum of from fundamental basic question, which would be totally irrelevant, but totally mechanism-based. And then it goes through a series of experiments to the clinical setting. So in order to treat effectively and understand and also in the, understand the pathology, you have to understand the mechanism. I think that's where the science comes in. So sorry, I was rambling a bit, but I think science comes in trying to explain or provides understanding for the mechanism, whether it be bi biology or mechanics. Scott, I want to ask you a similar question, but in a different way. Recently, a lot of clinical studies have made headlines in the main press or the lay press, a, a few come to mind in terms of the, from now several years ago, the sham surgery um, versus meniscectomy, and more recently, uh, PRP having no effect for arthritis and other pathologies. 
where the headline is grabbed, it goes into mainstream media and everyone's talking about it. And, and it's basically based on one sentence in an abstract without reading any of the, the data that went into that study. How do we as clinicians use those types of studies or, or look at those types of headlines and explain that to our patients? How do we take that type of research that might get spun in a way that doesn't represent what the actual data is and, and talk to our patients and even talk to our colleagues about what those studies actually mean? Yeah, I mean, I think first, you know, know the field, be, become have some expertise in a given area so you have a much broader view than one or two or three studies. If you've read the literature for over some years, you can, any study that, you know, you can go today, obviously, right, and find five studies to support any view you want. So the way you really, I think, can have a, a more nuanced understanding is knowing the literature over time, so you, by reading, and at the end of the day, quite simply, you read. And then you read some more. And after that, you read some more. <laughs> That's the way you get good in the field. So, um, But point is, I think, knowing the field, so you can interpret that data. And, yeah, we, and then you read those papers carefully. Yeah, we're all, are, you know, many people are prone to sound bites. You know, they, they read, if, you know, the abstract at most, and they read or just the conclusion of the abstract. Well, obviously, that's, that's very, very limited. I think it's on us to be able to understand the paper and interpret that for our patients because, yeah, it gets picked up by CNN or something and you see it's a, a sound bite. Yeah. All you can do is do your homework, study that paper, know the field. That's the best way to try to educate our patients and, and our colleagues, frankly, too. And that helps you also to – and they all, all studies have even a kernel of truth, and, and they all have flaws. Even the best studies have flaws, and, and but each one you know has, has a kernel of truth. And um, again, research is iterative, so you can learn a little bit from each study and use that to say, okay, I, this is – I'm going to use this to design my next study. What are the outstanding questions raised by this study? How does that fit into the overall field, you know, where this field is in 2021? How does this one particular study add to it? What questions does it bring up? And that can help you, you know, move forward with your own research agenda. So, you know, no paper is perfect. They all have um, some value. They all have some limitations. And if, as you know the field, you can help you to pick out what is the value, what is limitations, what is, you know, what what is really not, you know, not worthwhile um, in a paper, and, and, and conversely, where does the paper make a real contribution? I think, Rachel, you bring up a really important point, and I personally avoid the media at all costs because they always seem to misinterpret something, but I think us as educators, we can actually do a lot for our students, residents, and fellows. That's one thing I've always emphasized on is that we're so used to instant answers and short, um, I guess, summarized results. And that's through education. I think we need to really teach people to read the original work, cite it properly and understand the strength of limitations of whatever, whatever papers they're reading instead of having somebody interpret it for you. So, I think if we want our field to really not get hammered by these media people, we need to uh, educate our people uh, best as we can so they can stand up and correct things if, uh, if, if need be. So I think that education is, um, in some ways, it's like trying to swim uphill, but at the same time, we've got to give it our best effort to young kids because they have everything on, on their phone and nobody reads full papers. So. When I hold journal clubs, I make them go through the entire paper, even though it's times, it takes a lot of time, just make sure that there are a lot of important things in there that they're missing out. 
I was thinking as you were commenting. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. I'm just a quick comment. You say you get what you give. Or another thing I like to tell our trainees is nothing hard is ever easy. And the point there is, as Titus said, you can do it the easy way. You can read, you know, a three-sentence summary and not learn much. Or you can put the effort in and learn something. Pretty simple, right? I mean, put the effort in, you'll do a better job. But, yeah, it's hard. Hard work is hard. (laughs) But it takes, though. Yeah, simply put. Yeah, I was just thinking as as you both were speaking, it it is a, a good testament to why the art of going through journal club is so important, even as a student or as a junior resident when you're post-call and tired and you don't really want to go through, you know, all the metrics and, and reg, regimen that you have to do when you do a good journal club. It's so important to learn how to critically read an article so that even if you become a pure clinician and never do a, a research paper in your career, you at least know or, or had a foundation for how to interpret literature and, and hopefully can rely back on that. It's so critical. You know, for, for both of you guys, we're kind of getting to the end of our time here, but I do have one question for each of you. And we'll start with Ty first. In the next five to 10 years, what is the hottest topic in orthopedic research? Wow. <laughs> Well, I'm biased. I'm totally biased because I'm an engineer and I engineer. So I think, I think with all the um, advances in technology, I think the patient-specific uh, treatment from uh, implant perspective, I think, will be a big thing because the imaging is getting better, 3D printing is getting better. So any type of reconstruction, I think it's going to go through more of the, uh, more of the, um, the, more of the intelligent process and be able to manufacture or treat and manufacture patient specific um, devices for a lot of things. So from an engineering perspective, that's what I see. And Scott, how about you from, from our, what, what is yeah. your, what are your thoughts from the West coast? So we, we, have have, we all have our biases. Devices. And actually here's an, an area where Ty and I overlap pretty well. I think so clearly we have our own interests and biases. And, um, but I think in where this field's going and then where we'll make progress is in a precision medicine approach. That's kind of what Ty just said, kind of, you know, matching, I think, and then I can go back on the biology side and mention on, you know, the biologists here, matching the particular biologic agent, cytokine, growth factor, cells, whatever you want to use to the patient's pathology. I think right now we are, I mean, it's frankly, it's, it's a crude approach. We use the same formulation for the same pathology. Well, you take 10 patients with arthritis, they all have a different condition, biologically, the cellular or molecular level. I mean, right, we, um, what we call arthritis, we probably 25 different conditions. We need to, as we learn how to phenotype our patients, then we can match the treatment to that patient. You know, this precision medicine approach is obviously huge in all areas of medicine. Um, I think in our field, we'll really play an important role. So on the mechanic side, Titus mentioned your, you know, precision implants and specific implants for a patient. I think we'll do the same specific for precision biologic implant for the patient. So I think we have a lot of, of parallels right there. So I think um, to summarize that, there's a, there's a line I usually say is that human beings haven't been around forever. And not much has changed in our body uh, with respect to our body, but technology certainly has changed. So if you look in the literature, every problem that we see, somebody's written about it, but we just didn't have means to solve it. And I think as technology advances, we're able to solve these things by applying these things. Well, I wanted to thank both of you for coming on 
it's um, very generous of you to share all of your insights and you guys just, we covered a huge amount of ground. Um, so it's really a testament to both of your years of expertise and experience in the field. This is about all the time we have for this podcast. Um, for all of our Shoulder Devil listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and we will see you next time.